Reconstructionist Radio presents a War Room production, Once Dead, where brothers and sisters in the faith share God's grace upon their lives, how they were once spiritually dead in their trespasses and sins, but are now kingdom-driven by the grace of God so undeserved. My name is Jason Sanchez, and I was once dead. I am a first-generation American, born in Santa Ana, California in 1976. My parents had immigrated from Cuba in the 60s after the Communist Revolution. They were nominal Roman Catholics, so I was baptized as a baby into the Roman Catholic Church. I only remember going to church a couple times in the first five years of my life, probably for an Easter Mass or some special occasion. My sister was born a year and a half after me, and we lived in Garden Grove, California during those early years. I had a good childhood with loving parents and a close, extended family. My father was a hard worker in the aerospace industry and moving up the ranks. He was a strict but caring man. My mother was a homemaker and very good one at that. She was loving and always there for us. At the age of five, my mother's cousin shared the gospel with my parents and invited them to start going to an Assemblies of God church in Santa Ana, California, called Templo Calvario. We started attending as a family, and both of my parents were saved shortly thereafter. Within that first year, I knew that the only way to get to heaven was through believing in Jesus Christ to save me, and I was led in a sinner's prayer. I was told I was saved because I said this prayer. Looking back, this so-called sinner's prayer and the assurance it was supposed to give me contributed to a lot of sin rebellion, and wrestling within my own mind throughout my teens and early twenties. Nevertheless, it was at this church where I learned much of the basic truths of Christianity. I was involved in the Royal Rangers program, which is a type of Christian Boy Scouts, and my sister and I were in the children's choir, and we even performed on Trinity Broadcasting Network. My dad played the drums for the worship team, so we were very involved in the church life, and all was well. A few years later, in 1984, My parents decided we were moving to a place called Sunnymead, and most kids in Orange County never heard of it. Those that did would say, wow, that's far. Even though we moved, we still went to Templo Calvario every Sunday, and then after church, we would go to my grandparents on my father's side for grandma's good Cuban food, and I would love to hang out with my grandpa. My grandpa was an old-school man, and he was also a weekend warrior when he came to booze. He would work hard all week at the factory, but when Friday evening came, He would start drinking his rum or vodka or any hard alcohol he can get his hands on. He would drink every weekend from Friday evening to Sunday night. So by the time we arrived on Sunday afternoon, he was already in his recuperating mode for Monday, although still drinking. We knew how the previous two days had been by the look on my grandma's face. She was a tough woman having to deal with my grandfather. Even with all his faults, he always showed his love for my sister and I. While the adults would always shun him, That would hurt me, but it also hurt me how he would treat my grandmother at times. He was a professional baseball player in Cuba in the late 40s, and I wanted to be like him. So he would take me to the batting cages often after church, and he would always give me advice on how to play ball and how to be a man. Like I said, he was very old school, so respect was everything. He would tell me in Spanish, Jason, you be friends with everyone, but if they disrespect you, 
break their face. I remember one day before we moved from Garden Grove, he was at my house, and he was watching me play with my friend in our front yard. My friend said something disrespectful to me and started laughing. My grandpa jumped up and told me I had to fight him because he disrespected me. So I did. I was only seven years old at this time. Now, it would be unbalanced to say that this was the norm because it wasn't. My grandpa was known for always smiling and being happy. He would take me to the store and introduce me to all the checkers in his broken English. He was proud of his first grandson, and I loved him. He was very patriotic and proud to be an American citizen. He hated communism and what happened to his country, Cuba. He passed that patriotism for America and hatred for communism on to me. Around 1988, my dad started attending a short lunchtime Bible study at his work. The guy leading it was a Calvinist, and my dad started learning about the sovereignty of God in all things and how God has a plan and that it is perfect and whatever God's will is will be done, including the fact that God predestined who he would save by grace. These new teachings were going against what our pastor was teaching, and he decided to stop taking our family to Templo Calvario. This was not very well received by my mom and us kids, as we had friendships and family that still went there. But Dad was the leader of the family, so it was his decision. We just stopped going to church. Why my dad didn't look for another church to start attending, I'm not sure. After about a year, we had a Cuban friend of the family that was a Baptist pastor. He invited us to start attending his church also in Santa Ana, called Iglesia Bautista Emanuel. It was a big difference. It was a much smaller church, but the Spanish Baptist preaching was still on fire like the Pentecostal preaching. And the pastor and his family were our friends, so we got accustomed to our new church quickly. Dad was again playing drums for the worship band. Mom was happy going to church again, and so were my sister and I. It was at this church where a lot of the focus was on the rapture of the church before the tribulation. I remember a series of films from the 70s on the tribulation and not wanting to be left behind. Because those that were not caught up would either have to get the mark of the beast and eventually go to hell, or be rounded up and beheaded for their faith in Christ. There were a few times when I came home from school, and it would take longer than normal for my mom to come to the door, and I would have a deep sense of despair that the rapture occurred, and I was left behind, because of some sin I had committed. God used these times to draw me closer to Him and to fear Him. I never doubted that God had saved me, but I didn't have that assurance that once saved, I was always saved. I had a childlike faith, but it was not rooted in Scripture. I loved to hear the truths of God from the pulpit, but I was not reading my Bible regularly. I was being spoon-fed. In 1989, my family was returning from a vacation in Lake Havasu. The winds were extremely bad on Interstate 40 between Needles and Barstow, and my dad lost control of the single-axle boat trailer we were towing. We rolled down into the 20-foot-deep center divider. The boat landed upside down about 50 feet away, and my mom was thrown out of the vehicle. I can still remember my dad, sister, and I calling and looking for my mom and seeing her laying on the ground. We thought she was dead. We ran to her and saw the chunks of flesh ripped out of her arm and thigh and the blood pouring out from the wounds. But thank God she was alive, although in bad shape. It was truly a miracle because under her head was our big bag of beach towels, and under the bag was a boulder that would have certainly bashed her skull if the bag had not been there. My mom and I were rushed by ambulance to a hospital in Barstow as I had a long gash on the top of my head, and I was losing blood too. We told each other how much we loved each other, and we thanked God for sparing our lives and that my father and sister were not injured. When we arrived at the hospital, 
I was given a reverse mohawk and sewn up as my mom was getting airlifted to Orange County. She had no movement in her legs, and the doctors didn't know if she would be paralyzed. Thank God, after a few days, she had movement and was on her way to a full recovery. We thank God for His merciful hand through this time in our lives. Within this next year, I had shown an interest in being baptized. I wanted to make a public profession of my faith, as all good Baptists are taught. So I told my parents, and they had me sit down with my pastor to see if I understood what it meant, and that it was a serious event in a Christian's life. He wanted me to start going to the young adult Sunday school for a few months until I turned 14. Then we would talk again, and he would schedule a baptism. I did as he directed. In August of 1990, the first Gulf War started, and I was fascinated by the 24-7 coverage on CNN. I had already liked the military and was enrolled to start ROTC in my freshman year of high school. I still wanted to be a baseball player, but just in case that didn't work out, I would have the U.S. Marine Corps to fall back on. The more I watched the war unfold on the television and the deep patriotism that my family displayed for our country, the more I wanted to be in Iraq and not in California. I put baseball on the back burner, and the Marine Corps took priority in my life over everything. It became my idol, even though I didn't know it at the time. I went to the Marine recruiter's office and told them I wanted to enlist. He chuckled and asked, How old are you, son? I told him I was 14. And he said, You have at least a few years before you can enlist, but you're welcome to train with our delayed entry program and hang out in the office as much as you like. So I did. This time in my life was exciting to me as I had started becoming a young man. I had started high school, got baptized at church, and was focused on becoming a Marine. Although it was exciting to me, it was not good for my life as a Christian. More and more the things of the Lord took second place to the things of the world. And this was the beginning of a time where I wanted to serve two masters. And we know that can't be done. So in effect, I was paying lip service to God and worshiping the idols I had set up in my life, just like the children of Israel did over and over again. I started hanging out with worldly-minded teenagers at school and getting into trouble. All this I hid from my parents. I had a type of double-agent life. When I was at church, I would feel conviction and ask God to forgive me, but during the week, I would be promiscuous with the girls in school and fulfilling the desires of the flesh. I never had victory over the flesh for more than a short while. In 1992, I turned 16, and Calvary Chapel, Moreno Valley, opened the doors of its new church building, and my parents decided to start going there. We had been commuting to Santa Ana for the past eight years and were ready to attend a church close to home. We all liked our new church, and my sister and I were involved in the youth group, which was pretty big. There were a lot of activities for us, retreats, midweek service, and we started going to Christian hardcore ska and punk rock shows with friends. I had my driver's license and a job now, and my dad had given me a pickup which would fit two in the cab and eight tightly squeezed teenagers in the bed. It was legal back then. So come Friday night, I would pick up one of two sets of friends, Christian punk rock buddies from church and head off to a show, or my friends from school and off to a house party to drink and meet girls. Many times it would be both if the show ended early enough. By the end of that school year, I had a third set of friends. I was jumped into what was called back then a tagging crew. It was a type of graffiti-slash-party crew that was loosely affiliated with a local street gang. What drew me to these guys was the adrenaline rush that I would get when we would get into fights with rival crews. My mind was so saturated by this time with all the Vietnam War movies and other military movies that I would watch, the training with the Marine recruiters along with being trained in martial arts since I was 12 years old, 
I had to release all this testosterone and put it into action, and the tagging crew filled that void. You see, even though I was going to church on Sundays and at times hanging with my Christian friends, I was not rooted in Scripture. I was not being washed by the Word of God. I was not being sanctified by His truth. His Word is truth. I was feeding my flesh and it was growing more and more. Going to church on Sunday is not the only dealings a Christian should have with God. There is no substitute for a private daily communing with God by allowing Him to speak to you through the Scriptures and in turn you speaking to Him through prayer. We must be washed by the Word and eat of the bread of life daily. I was suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. Brothers and sisters, God will not be mocked, and I was soon to find out the hard way. This is the time in my life where I was wandering in the desert, refusing to obey God and follow Him into the land of milk and honey. I was at enmity with God, all while thinking I was fine, because I believed in Him during that sinner's prayer all those years back. But I did not feel His presence in my life anymore, and that brought fear. Throughout all this, I was still on track to graduate a full semester early from high school. I excelled in ROTC and was a leader of cadets. My grades were above average, and I had taken classes at the community college during the summer. I was intent on enlisting in the Marine Corps on my 17th birthday, and not a day later. 1993 came, and my sin and rebellion continued to increase. I moved out of my parents' house because I wanted to be my own man and live by my own ungodly rules. My actions caused much pain and grief in my parents' lives. I did not honor my father and my mother. It was during this time that my mother would have nightmares of her son being murdered and his body being dumped over her backyard fence. She never stopped praying for me to come back home and for the Lord to restore me unto himself. I was training hard for boot camp and partying just as hard. That's what I thought a Marine was supposed to do. I stopped going to church and was focused on my goal, or should I say, my idol, August finally came. I turned 17 and my parents agreed to sign a permission for me to enlist since I was still a minor. I had been waiting for this day for three years. I was scheduled to leave to boot camp the first week in February. I loved boot camp and I also attended Sunday Protestant services there. I visited with God and then went about my business of earning the title U.S. Marine. Once again, paying lip service to a holy God. What a wretched blasphemer I was. I graduated as a platoon honor man and was the only one in the platoon able to wear the coveted dress blues. Midway through boot camp, I had received a letter from my girlfriend that she had gotten pregnant a couple weeks before I left. Our baby was due in October, a couple months after I turned 18. I was happy and she was happy, but now we had to get married. I had a two-week break between boot camp graduation and Marine combat training, so we went to Las Vegas and her dad and my dad had to sign for us to get married since we were both 17. We had only known each other for about six months. And half that time, I was in boot camp. We didn't even know ourselves, much less each other. The next weekend, I had my senior prom at the Nixon Library. I walked into the prom with my dress blues on, married, and my first child on the way, while everyone else still had two months left of high school. My beautiful daughter was born in October 1994. Looking back, I see that she was a blessing from God in more ways than one. Having the responsibility of caring for a child was a restraint on my depravity, I didn't quite go as far as I would have in many instances throughout my life. Six months later, my unit deployed to Okinawa, Japan for a six-month deployment. This is where God took my idol and crushed it to pieces. We landed on the island of Okinawa in May of 1995. It was humid and hot. We did a lot of training and a lot of drinking and partying. Sin abounded more and more, and the Bible that my parents had given me for my Marine Corps graduation was tucked neatly away in my nightstand 
never to be opened, at least not yet. In July 1995, my platoon was sent to Camp Fuji, Japan for a couple of months. I was excelling as a Marine and being recognized for it, but at the same time, getting warnings about my off-duty behavior by my superiors. They kept telling me, Sanchez, this isn't the old Corps. We have a new and cleaner image to uphold. That didn't quite register with me or many of my fellow Marines. We would get into fights often. It was part of the culture. Even our platoon sergeants would resort to taking a guy out back to discipline him instead of riding him up. That way it would not leave a mark on their service jacket. I was given the task, along with another Marine, to correct lazy, or like we called them, unsat Marines, by strong warning, then by force if necessary. We were the enforcers. We flew back to Okinawa at the end of August, just in time to celebrate my birthday. It was Labor Day weekend, and my best friend and I were going to celebrate by drinking hard at the barracks and going out in town to our favorite biker bar to continue the party. While we were drinking in my barracks room, my roommate gets a call from his wife in the States that his daughter was just born, so we invited him to come along with us to celebrate. Normally, we would not ask my roommate to go anywhere with us because this guy was just too crazy, even for our standards. He had a serious anger issue with no restraint. He was about 6'4", and cornbread fed from Texas. He had already gotten busted down two ranks while in Okinawa for hurting other fellow Marines in our unit. Regardless, we were all celebrating something, so after the alcohol in our room was consumed, we got on the bus, which we called the Loser Cruiser, and headed down to the south part of the island to continue our revelries. That night ended in a dimly lit alley with a fight between my roommate and a sailor. When I came up on the fight, I saw my roommate straddled on top of the sailor, and I thought he was punching him. But then I saw the flash of a blade and realized he was stabbing him. As I reached down to pull my roommate off the sailor, he slashed his throat. We took off running, and like a coward, I left the young man there, not knowing if he would live. Once sober and back at our barracks, I felt a strong sense of guilt and conviction for abandoning the man there and for abandoning my Lord and his precepts. I knew that the way I was living was not the way a Christian should be. I asked the Lord for forgiveness and repented of the way I was living. I picked up my Bible once again and started to get into the Word of God. I still did not do the right thing in turning my fellow Marine for what he had done. The sailor survived the twelve knife wounds due in part that the keychain knife my roommate used had a small one-and-a-half-inch blade. I asked my roommate why he did it, and he said he blacked out and didn't know why. How ironic that the night we are celebrating my birthday and the birth of his child, he almost sends a man to the grave. All three of us that went that night were arrested and thrown into solitary confinement at the Federal Military Brig. We were all charged with attempted murder and conspiracy along with other charges. While in solitary confinement for the first two weeks, we were only allowed one book and nothing else. I read the whole Bible for the first time. I felt a strange peace amidst the cold cement walls of the prison. God was showing me my sin and his love through the chastisement of a heavenly father to his son. A week before our trial started, they dropped the charges of attempted murder and conspiracy on all three of us and offered me and my best friend a two-year sentence, one of which was probationary, for pleading guilty to Article 134, misprison of a serious offense, meaning we did not report the crime to the proper authorities and we helped my roommate to elude capture. They offered my roommate a ten-year sentence for pleading guilty to aggravated assault with a deadly weapon. We all pled guilty and had to await final sentencing where the rest of the issues would be adjudicated. 
whether I would be discharged from the Marine Corps or just reduced in pay grade. This was up to the judge, but I knew ultimately the decision was from God. I pleaded with God, and I wrestled with Him to please let me stay in the Corps. I would be a good Christian example to my fellow Marines. It would bring Him glory. I would not let go of my idol freely, and God does not compromise. I still wanted to serve two masters, but God said, No, you are mine, and I am a jealous God. He crushed my idol to dust, and I was about to find out. I went before the judge for sentencing. He said, I hereby sentence you to two years of confinement, one of which is suspended. I could do that. Reduction to pay grade E1, private. Not good, but I can deal with it. Forfeiture of all pay and allowances. I didn't expect to get paid while incarcerated anyways. And a bad conduct discharge from the United States Marine Corps. Now that one hurt. I served a year in the brig, and God used it mightily. My dream of being a career Marine was shattered, but my faith in God was renewed. The Lord giveth, and the Lord taketh away. I started to realize that God was in total control of my life, and I was the clay being formed. I knew that while incarcerated, it would be easy to stay close to the Lord, but was worried about being a young man outside those walls. I came home to the U.S. just in time for my daughter's second birthday. I missed a crucial year and a half of her life. I was without a job and it had a young family, but God provided a job through my uncle. I drove amphibious tanks in the Marines, so driving a big rig truck worked out well and it, it paid the bills. So at 20 years old, I got my Class A license. I moved my family to the desert and bought a house. It felt good to be free again. My oldest son was born in March 1998, and my beloved grandfather, the man that taught me how to be a man, died in June 1998. In 1999, I was asleep in the sleeper berth of my tractor trailer when my partner hit some black ice on I-70 in Colorado and jackknifed the rig. The cab started caving in on me, but God spared me again. I have ridden motorcycles since I was 16 and bought my first Harley-Davidson when I was 17 years old. They were always ridden hard. For years, it would be my only mode of transportation, rain or shine. Since I was a teenager... I had always wanted to be in a motorcycle club, but knew you had to be 21 to join. The club life fascinated me, the brotherhood and the open road. While incarcerated, I wanted to start a Christian motorcycle club when I was released. Instead, in 1999, I was given an invite by two different clubs to prospect for them. One was a notorious outlaw club, and the other what we call in the biker world a family club. One claimed territory and was usually at war with another outlaw club, and the other was neutral and could party with any club anywhere at any time since they didn't claim a territory for business purposes. Both were old school clubs started in the 60s and both demanded respect. Lacking the strong bond of brotherhood from the Marine Corps and finding it with a motorcycle club, I decided to join. I prospected and was patched out. I was now a member of a motorcycle club and started a life of hard riding and hard drinking like before. But this time... I added hard drugs to the mix. During the week, I would work hard and be a family man, but on most weekends, I would be gone with the club. We would ride out to Arizona or Nevada or Northern or Central California to different runs or clubhouses. It was like being in the Marine Corps, very structured. There were officers and soldiers. When elections came around the first year, I was elected sergeant-at-arms, enforcer. It was my job to protect the president while in public or with other clubs 
and to enforce the bylaws and constitution of the club, and I did. In January 2001, my second son was born. Later on that year, I stopped training and teaching martial arts, which I had done since I was a kid, and I joined a Doors tribute band playing the part of Jim Morrison. We played shows in Las Vegas, Arizona, California, and Mexico. I reenacted the lifestyle of Jim Morrison on and off the stage, in excess. In 2002, I filed for divorce. There was infidelity on both parts. I was a single father with three kids. I had them every other weekend, and my mom helped out a lot. I moved to Laverne, which is closer to my work in Pomona. The little old house was next door to a Spanish Pentecostal church. I didn't even realize it when I rented the house. Many times I would see the people all dressed in their Sunday best, with Bible in hand and smiles on their faces walking to the door of the church. And I knew why they had such joy. They were going to worship God. And I knew that no matter what I did to try and suppress the truth and unrighteousness, it would not bring the joy they had, the joy I had in the past. In 2002, I hit bottom. I had been using drugs heavily and wanted to get things back under control. So I took my club colors to my president and told him I needed to go inactive from the club so I can clean up. He was one of the handful of totally sober guys in the club, and he agreed. I stopped using drugs cold turkey. I was not an addict. In fact, I really hated the drugs after a while. But I was a social user, and in that setting, they would keep you going for days, and it became a vicious cycle. Once again, I was drawn to the Word of God. I went to the church next door for a couple weeks, but the preaching didn't line up with the Scripture. I found out my old youth pastor at Calvary Chapel was given his own Calvary Chapel, so I started going there. After a couple months and discussions over doctrine, mainly predestination and the sovereignty of God, I decided to continue my search. At this time, I didn't even know what Reformed theology was. I just knew what was plain to see in the Scripture. Next, I went to a Foursquare church. Nah, that's not it. I was longing to find a good biblical church to fellowship, grow, and be fed in. I did a search online for a denomination test and found one. Fifty questions later, my results popped onto the screen. Reformed Baptist. Well, I had been a Baptist for many years, but what does the Reformed mean? I punched it online and bam, there was a Reformed Baptist church in Riverside. Perfect. Now I was excited for Sunday to come. It was mid-2003 when I first visited the Reformed Baptist church. The preaching had lined up with scripture. The whole worship service was centered on God, not man. I had found my home. It was well with my soul. I was attending Sunday school, worship service, Wednesday night prayer, and playing on the softball team. I started the theology classes on Saturdays and was reading more books on the side. The whole historical, reformed, biblical view of Christianity was open to me. I was also sharing with my close motorcycle club brothers the gospel, and they pretty much listened and said, Brother, so when are you coming back? We miss you. One book I read at this time was Absolute Predestination by a 16th century Italian reformer named Jerome Zanchius. I devoured that book with all of its proof texts on the total sovereignty of God in all things. But I began to get an unbalanced view of Scripture, and I was slowly becoming an antinomian and a fatalist. At the same time, I was bothered by the strictness surrounding communion and having to be a member of the church. I thought that having an official church membership was unbiblical from all the years of attending churches with no membership. So I voiced my concerns with my pastor, and he set up a time to come to my apartment so we can go through the scriptures regarding the issue. I did not agree with him. Once again, my rebellion was coming out, and my unbalanced, antinomian, fatalistic stance was growing, and I used the membership issue to stop attending 
Within a couple months, I was back active in the motorcycle club as sergeant-at-arms. The band was getting back together, and I stopped reading my Bible. I wasn't partying hard like I used to, so I thought I was all good. But I was not glorifying God, nor pressing toward the mark of the upward call in Christ Jesus. For the next seven years, I was living a life that was not satisfying. It was all vanity of vanity. The joy the world had to offer was empty. I had a void in my heart that only being a slave to the one that bought me with his precious blood could bring. God did bless me during those years beyond what I deserved. In July 2004, God placed a woman in my life that would become my best friend and my wife and her four-year-old son that I adopted and love as my own. Our first daughter together was born in February 2009. It was at this time that my wife started expressing the desire to start going to church and wanted me to retire from the motorcycle club. She didn't want this lifestyle for our baby girl. I just told her, okay, if we get pregnant again, I promise I will retire from the club. Well, she got pregnant again right around the time of the annual motorcycle club officer's election where I was nominated to be vice president. The club needed me, and so did my wife. I broke the promise to her before God and chose to stay in the club. This caused a lot of problems, and shortly after, my wife had a miscarriage. God had taken this child from us. I felt a deep conviction and asked God to forgive me for breaking my promise. I told him that if he would bless us with another baby, I would retire for sure this time and never look back. I was already tired of the lifestyle and all the world had to offer. I wanted the only true joy in Christ, but I felt a responsibility to the club. My wife had a strong desire to go to church even if it was only every other Sunday when there was no club meeting. But for me, it was all or nothing. I was either 100% committed to God or not. In April 2011, we found out she was pregnant again. At the next club meeting, I announced I was retiring. The next Sunday, we attended my old Reformed Baptist Church and never looked back. Our son was born in December 2011. God blessed my wife and I with another daughter in January 2014, our first grandchild in 2015, and a baby girl due in June of 2016. Looking back at my wretched life of rebellion, it amazes me how a holy God could actually bless me with so much. God is long-suffering and kind towards His people. Those whom Christ has shed His blood for shall never be snatched from His hand, though He may allow to stray for a season or two. Jesus is the author and finisher of our faith. He knows the beginning from the end, because He is the God of all creation. The work of sanctification continues and will continue until that final day, when I pass from time and into eternity. But until then... God has saved us for a purpose. I do not know what place He had for me in His kingdom, but I did know that God has a place for each and every one of His blood-bought children. We know that the Scriptures tell us in 1 Corinthians that Christ shall reign until He has put every enemy under His feet and that we are to be His ambassadors and soldiers. We are to fight the good fight and run the long marathon of life to the glory of God. We must look around us and see where God can use us. Look for a void that you can fill to the glory of God. We are called to exercise dominion and influence those whom God has providentially placed in our spheres of influence. God, by His grace, has seen fit to use this broken vessel, which He has put back together, in a few ways that I could not have seen coming. The very job He gave me as a truck driver back when I was a 20-year-old young man was the perfect job that provided for my family all these years and also provided time for me to learn while driving and working. I would consume sermons while spending 12 to 14 hours a day on the road, when I grew tired of hearing preaching, I found out that there was free seminary courses online 
through iTunes University, so I consumed every class that Westminster Theological Seminary, Reformed Theological Seminary, and a few other seminaries put out. I decided to compile all the classes and other resources I learned from into a Facebook page called The Truck Driver Theologian. I figured that, that other truck drivers and people with long commutes could benefit with a systematic approach and a one-stop place to get a free, over-the-road education. I would also love to read, and that is how I spend my time when I was away from home on occasion and when I had free time at home. The Puritans were my favorite. It was during this time that I became a Presbyterian through my studies in covenant theology. When I saw the continuity of the covenants, I started getting more consistent with what I saw the scriptures say, and I became a presuppositionalist. And then I stopped glossing over the numerous pages of scripture that point to Christ's victory and dominion in time. And so I easily drove out of the Amill parking lot and moved right into postmillennialism. This change in eschatological view, along with finding out that there was a name for what I believed about God's law already, and it was theonomy, had the biggest impact upon how I lived out my faith. I had already been the lead for the street outreach team in my church, but it was now ramped up with enthusiasm because I realized that the Great Commission will be successful, truly successful, not successful as the Amels put it. So I then was turned on to Gary North's free library online, and since I had already exhausted the seminary classes, I started to download and listen to these books through a text-to-talk app called Voice Dream. I had 12- to 14-hour shifts, so I went through a lot of books. Even though vo the voice reading to me sounded like a robot, the technology is just not there yet, but that was providential as well. Because of that robotic voice, the Lord impressed into my mind this question. What if I could organize a group of people to narrate these free books into audio files and have them on a website for free download? Well, we are now almost one year into this ministry named Reconstructionist Radio, and we have over 30 volunteers producing audiobooks of Gary North's library, R.J. Rush Dooney's Chalcedon Foundation Library, Stephen Perks Library, Bojidar Marinov's Christendom Restored Article Archives, Phil Kaiser's Biblical Blueprints Library, and American Visions Library, which contains books by Joel McDermott and Gary DeMar, as well as others. We have also launched a seven-day-a-week podcast network, of which this show is one of them. God has also allowed me to be a part of a church plant, along with two other co-elders that are solid, like-minded men of God, seeking to advance the kingdom of Christ through this CREC mission plant named Covenant Church. God has truly blessed a wretch like me with an amazing wife, eight healthy children, and one grandchild. I don't say any of this to gain praise from man because I deserve nothing but to be damned to hell, to be twice dead. But I share this because Jesus Christ has redeemed me and made me by His grace kingdom-driven. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete weekly lineup of seven distinct shows. You can subscribe now to your favorite shows on iTunes, or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed on iTunes, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator, or to partner financially with this ministry. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His kingdom.